can run on for a long time, run on for a long time, run on for a long time. Sooner or later, gotta cut you down. Hey guys, I am so excited to have a guest this week. Her name is Liz Jackson, and she is a friend of mine, an amazing philosopher who currently studies and works at the University of Notre Dame. She and I are going to be discussing kind of an atrocious article written by an <laughs> atheist philosophy professor that the New York Times ran a few weeks ago. So, hello, Liz. Hi, Carmen. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I've listened to a few episodes already, and I'm really excited to be here. Yes, thank you. And it's it's Dr. Liz Jackson now, right? <laughs> yes, you've got exciting new job opportunities happening in the near future, yes? Yeah, so I um, defended my dissertation a couple of months ago um, at the end of November, so it's, it's really a huge relief to be done. And then, yeah, I'm actually going to be a postdoc in Australia at Australian National University oh my next gosh, year. That's and so then cool. After that, yeah, after that, I'll be starting a job at Ryerson University, which is a school in Toronto. So oh I'm actually, I didn't really mean to, but I'm kind of like leaving the U.S. After I'm, after I'm in Australia, I'll be close. Oh, Toronto's not too far. So, yes, that's yeah. true. I'm, I'm really excited about both. Heck yeah, <laughs> those are super exciting. And if, if people listening, if you've listened to past episodes of Viva La Joy, you might remember my conversation with Ian Hewitt. Uh, that episode was called A Time to Be Bold. And Ian actually mentioned Liz because she is the one who put together the Theological Philosophical Discussion Group where we all met, and look at you now, Dr. Jackson teaching that philosophy. It's actually, it's actually really fun because a lot of us in that group, so Ian's a lawyer now, um, I'm you know, finishing up my degree in philosophy, our other friend is also doing his PhD in philosophy, and then our other friend's doing a PhD in psychology. So it's just kind of fun to see where we're all at, but we also all kind of keep in touch pretty regularly. That was a really, really fun group. So, yes. Uh, it was it was so fun to, to reconnect with you because, yeah, it's been, it's been a little bit of time since we've, we've talked. So. Yes, it really yeah. has, and it's so <laughs> awesome. You guys are all so smart. It's cool to see you taking taking that intelligence. I just blog, so <laughs> there's that. But, but I get to I get to interview really smart people, so that's it's a fun it's a fun job. All right. So being that philosophy is Liz's expertise, and I'm just kind of an amateur. I'm interested in philosophy, but by no means any kind of expert. I want to get Liz's thoughts on some of the arguments raised by philosopher Peter Adderton. Um, he wrote an article called a God problem, um, which I linked in this episode for those who would like to read it. It's pretty short. Um, and so, Liz, when I first asked you about being on the podcast and discussing this article, you mentioned that it kind of went viral and that philosophers, both Christians and atheists, had a lot to say about it. And why do you think that was the case? Why did this particular article get so much attention? Yeah, I think people from both camps, I mean, he did summarize a lot of interesting points that I, a lot of philosophers are interested in thinking about, so... You know, I don't want to be too critical of it. Sure. But I guess people from both camps also thought thought he's not really raising, you know, decisive object- objections. There's a lot of responses to these objections that he's raising. And I think the thing is thought he's not even raising the best objections that he could. So yeah. I think both camps kind of had some, some critical uh, critical points to make about the article. It wasn't, you know, just the answer. We're like, 
this is a fair, but I think a lot of watchers are like, yeah, I mean, this could have, some of this could have been worded or presented better. So. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like uh, I said, I'm not even a particularly advanced philosopher, but even I read it with like my eyebrows raised up. <laughs> I was like, yeah. uh, you're kind of jumping to some wild conclusions, my man, without making yep. super compelling arguments. But we'll just kind of go through each of the arguments one by one here, um, because I think that's probably the easiest way to go through that. So the first thing he brings up in the article is the question of omnipotence or all-powerfulness. And he presents some different ideas on that, but basically he focuses on the question, can God create a world in which evil does not exist? And then he goes on to write, quote, this does appear to be logically possible, Presumably God could have created such a world without contradiction. It evidently would be a world very different from the one we currently inhabit, but a possible world all the same. Indeed, if God is morally perfect, it is difficult to see why he wouldn't have created such a world. So why didn't he? And then he goes on a little bit and says, The standard defense of this is that evil is necessary for free will. According to the well-known Christian philosopher Alvin Plantinga, Quote, to create creatures capable of moral good, God must create creatures capable of moral evil. And he can't give these creatures the freedom to perform evil and at the same time prevent them from doing so. End of Plantinga's quote. And then Adderton adds, however, this does not explain so-called physical evil, like suffering caused by non-human causes, such as famine, earthquakes, etc. So he's raising this question of why didn't God create a world where evil didn't exist, and then he claims that non-human causes of suffering delegitimize the idea of free will. And so I'm just curious, what would your response be to those assertions? Yeah, so this is just a a pretty standard, really basic kind of presentation of the problem of evil, especially the first question, you know, why why did God create a world without evil? Right. So, So to that, I mean... On my view, I do think the free will defense is a really important part of the answer to that question. And actually, so a number of answers to that question have been offered by philosophers. He only talks about one of them. And again, like this might have been partially because he could only make it so long or whatever. So I don't want to be overly critical. But he's overlooking a lot of... This is a super widely discussed question all the way back to like the beginning of philosophy. I mean, he's just overlooking a lot right here. And and that kind of, I think, is why people are like, maybe he's not being totally fair to see it. Right. Um, so, yeah, there's, um, so, yeah, the free will defense is a really popular sort of response, which is kind of evil is a necessary part of free will, which uh, the good of free will sort of overrides the bad a lot of these evils. Yes. Um, but there's a lot of other responses to the problem of evil, and a number of those responses not only explain sort of evil things that people do to each other, but also these broader, like, natural or physical evils, like earthquakes or tornadoes or tsunamis or whatever. So I, I wanted to hit on a, a, a few of those. And, again, just for the time, we probably won't have time to do justice to all of them. Sure. But one is uh, called the soul-making theodicy. Okay. So the one way to think about the theodicy is just a, kind of a response to the problem of evil or an explanation for why there would be evil. And according to the soul-making theodicy, some evils are necessary for sort of the refinement and development of humans. And without those evils, we couldn't be as virtuous or as flourishing as people. Uh, those evils are kind of like a necessary part of our narrative or our story. Yeah. Because they've made us into, into people that 
we, we wouldn't be if we just were born into a perfect world. Yeah. And that doesn't, note that that doesn't rely on the free will defense. It could be that there's some external evil that's not caused by another person, but that nonetheless kind of causes me to grow in character in a way that ends up being better overall than if we hadn't had the evil at all. Totally. So, yeah. so that's a, a sort of story that could explain both the free will, uh, human evils, and the non-human evil that uh, is something a lot of philosophers talk about. Absolutely, yeah. I've heard um, that before, yeah. Is that the that um, term, is it soul-building is sort of used in yeah. relation to that? Yes. Yeah, exactly. So soul-building or soul-making is one um, that I think is like is interesting and could be plausible, at least for part of the story. And then uh, another one, and this is going to make a little bit more controversial theological assumptions, but some people think that Satan and demons actually have some power. So God values human free will, but God also values free will of other creatures like angels and, and demons and Satan. Yeah. And because they have certain free will, at least maybe some natural evil is caused by them, you know, so you could actually give like a broader version of the free will defense that involves non-human free will. That could also explain oh, some of yeah. tornadoes and yeah. um, natural, uh, like famine, uh, natural disease, yeah. Catastrophes, yeah, exactly. Okay. So, so those are two. Um, the third is a little more abstract, but I thought it might be worth kind of throwing on. The idea behind it is this: is that it was good for God to create a world that sort of had regular laws of nature operating. So, kind of the laws of nature that scientists study. Mm-hmm. And these laws kind of help us predict the future. They help us make informed decisions about the world. They help us study the world, etc. But because you know, it's, it's sort of hard to summarize this sh- shortly, there's like whole books written on <laughs> yeah, sure. But the idea is that because these regular laws are in place, they do kind of come along with the occasional catastrophe. Mm-hmm. Um, and the catastrophe is obviously a bad thing, but it's sort of outweighed by the good of having these regular laws governing our world. And so, again, I think for each of these, I don't necessarily want to say this is the full story on why God allowed this evil. But I think you can actually get a really powerful response to the problem of evil by kind of like combining all of these reasons and saying, look, like there's tons and tons and tons of reasons. And once you have all these reasons on the table, it's much more likely that the good of all these reasons is going to outweigh the bad of the evil. That's so a very good point. That's kind of my my preferred strategy. The last little point I just wanted to make in response to this is I think it's also worth noting that God could have a very good reason for causing certain evils, even if we can't know about or identify that reason. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I mean... We're humans, we're solvable. I think we kind of need a degree of intellectual humility to just say, look, it might not be in every case that we know the reason, but that doesn't necessarily count, especially given we think we're kind of already in this position where there's a lot of knowledge out there we don't have and a lot of things we can't predict and understand. That's a very good point. Yes, a lot of what you said makes sense to me on a philosophical level, but also just something I think about a lot as like a writer and a storyteller is how important it is for stories to have conflict and obstacles. And, you know, you can't like tell a story without that. And I I think that's powerful. Like as a Christian, I think when I think about the problem of evil and sin, I think that we're living this amazing story that God is telling. But obviously it's really hard when you're in the midst of suffering or you're seeing something atrocious and catastrophic to think, oh, this is, you know, this is part of a story. Stories don't necessarily seem 
like practical or useful, but that's how we think of everything. We think of everything in terms of stories and stories are what gives us meaning. And so it just kind of comes back to that. Like this, the problem of evil while devastating also provides us with this framework for creating and making meaning out of what we're living. If that makes sense. I don't know. That's kind of a storytelling rambly idea, but no, I think that's great, and I think that's kind of joint. I both think a couple authors have actually been working on projects like this where they're sort of using the power of story or narrative to kind of give us a new perspective on evil and yeah. suffering in the world and think about how boring most stories would be if there was never any conflict or evil or bad things that happened. You yeah. know, I mean, that's just... <laughs> that right. would be, in most cases, a really lame story. Um, so I think that's really good, and I also think that also relates in a lot of ways to the filmmaking theodicy. It's like mm-hmm. there's a lot of good that you can't get without there being some kind of testing or yeah. uh, you know issue that comes up that you have to overcome. So I think it, it can it can fold in with some of the existing theodicies really nicely as well. It's a lot yeah. of good points, good responses to that one. Adderton then next gets into God's omniscience or all knowingness. And this part, I'm going to, I'm looking forward to your answers to this because it kind of boggles my mind as I read it. So he says, quote, leaving aside the highly implausible idea that God knows all the facts in the universe, no matter how trivial or useless, which just that sentence alone, I'm like, wait, why is that implausible? But anyways, uh, he goes on and says, if God knows all there is to know, then he knows at least as much as we know. But if he knows what we know, then this would appear to detract from his perfection. Why? There are some things that we know that if they were also known to God would automatically make him a sinner, which of course is in contradiction with the concept of God. As the late American philosopher Michael Martin has already pointed out, if God knows all that is knowable, then God must know things that we do, like lust and envy. But one cannot know lust and envy unless one has experienced them. But to have had feelings of lust and envy is to have sinned, in which case God cannot be morally perfect. But to say that God knows what it is like to want to inflict pain on others is to say that God is capable of malicious enjoyment. A morally perfect being would never get enjoyment from causing pain to others. Therefore, God doesn't know what it is like to be human. And in that case, he doesn't know what we know. But if God doesn't know what we know, God is not all-knowing and the concept of God is contradictory. God cannot be both omniscient and morally perfect. Hence, God could not exist. (laughs) I'm like, wait, what? He doesn't exist because he's not those things? Okay, buddy. Um, So what are your thoughts on that? A couple things he brought up, which is one, that he thinks God probably doesn't know everything. Two, that God knowing what we know makes him sinful. And three, that all that means he doesn't exist. (laughs) Your thoughts. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. That was, like, a lot, and then, like, conclusions just kind of comes out of nowhere. Um, <laughs> so, so first point, I, like, totally agree with you. That I just don't see at all why God's knowing little details about the world takes away from God's greatness. Um, so it's not like those are the only thing that God knows about. Right. Or that God's, like, some finite mind <laughs> can only think about, like, how many blades of grass are in my front yard or something, you know? So... Uh, I think this objection just fails to account for the way that most DST God, which is as an infinite being who can think about an infinite number of things at the same time and right. has an infinite storage capacity. So I would say, on the other hand, I think it would actually totally detract from God's greatness if there were details about the world that God didn't know about at all, yeah. especially given that God's infinite, you know? Right. So I just, 
I don't know. At that point, like, <laughs> that's all the point I was like, I just don't even, I don't even see. Yeah, that, you're just you like, know, like that, no that comment. Really cool water for me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I think the second point is a little bit. It is something that some more like philosophers kind of discuss and debate sure. about. But I think so. So the point is kind of like, look, God's supposed to know everything. If you know everything, you know what it's like to be jealous or to experience lust. Right. But God can't be jealous to experience lust, so God can't know everything, right? So, yeah. um, and I think what I want to say here is, well, look, there's a huge difference between knowing what it's like to be jealous or knowing what it's like to experience lust, and then actually experiencing those things, Right, exactly. Right? Yeah. And, and I think, again, this can be, like, a little bit hard for humans to grasp, because since we are finite, we usually, like, associate these things with each other. But the best example I could think of is, like, a case where you're kind of experiencing empathy for another person. Yeah. So let's say your friend's going through a tough breakup, and you can know that, like, wow, that sucks you're going through a breakup. Like, I know that that is, like, not a fun position to be in. Yeah. Without going through the breakup yourself. Exactly. You know? And so I think the response is to say, look, God can know what it's like to have the perspective of a human or even the perspective of a sinner without actually sinning. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, so this is actually, and some people think what this is called is called omnisubjectivity. And so that's the idea that God knows what it's like to be in every kind of mindset. But that doesn't mean that God is actually in those mindsets. Yeah. He just knows what it would be like to be in those mindsets. Totally. Yeah. So, so he's I like mean, experienced maybe this like super deep empathy, like, you know, almost yeah. like in a way. Yeah. 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 That's one way you can think about it. Yeah. Um, and so I think the problem with his argument is it's sort of conflating those two things, knowing what it's like to be in the mindset and then actually being in that mindset. Yeah. And um, I think the other thing that I wanted to kind of note here too that I just think is one reason like I think Christianity is super cool is because like Jesus actually did become a, a man. Jesus was fully human and experienced a lot of the things that people go through. Yeah. And I think this shows that like God the Christian God can identify with humans and with human experience in a way that gods of other religions can't. And I think that's kind of cool. And yeah. like, that almost makes it you could argue that given Christianity, God knows more, at least in this sense, than in other religions, because God actually knows what it's like to be human because God yeah. loves humans. So, yes, God yeah. knows what it's like to die, you know, like all these this kind yeah. of mind boggling things. Yeah. Well, and it's funny that you say that because Adderton you know, a couple paragraphs down from what we're discussing basically just says, yeah, I'm just going to ignore that. I'm going to not address (laughs) that Jesus was fully human and fully God because uh, I don't think that's convincing or something. I don't know. His wording is pretty dismissive, but uh, yeah, he's just like, yeah, no. It just bothers me that like, there's been so much interesting work by philosophers and theologians trying to make sense of this and giving really interesting accounts of how Jesus could be fully God and fully human and how his nature's put together and all these books written on it. And it's like, it just feels kind of bad that he's just kind of like ignoring all that and just being like, nah, it doesn't make sense. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, you know, there's not a lot, like, at least it's not obvious that there's a lot behind his statement. It's not like yes. he's like read all those books and he's giving objections. He's just kind of like dismissing it out of hand. Right, so, right, yeah. exactly. Since we're kind of heading towards the end of the article here, he wraps up the whole thing by saying that in his final paragraph that these logical inconsistencies that he's pointed out, that he thinks he's pointed out, being about uh, omnipotence and 
omniscience led to the 17th century French theologian Blaise Pascal to, quote, reject reason as a basis for faith and return to the Bible and Revelation, quote, which Adderton, you know, clearly writes about that with some clear disdain for Pascal. And I know that Pascal's wager is actually one of your areas of expertise. So I am curious what you think of that assessment that Pascal rejected reason because of these logical inconsistencies? That's a great question. So I am not as much of a historian, so I, you know, I don't want to step too far out of, you know, what I'm most familiar with here. So I do know, however, that many Pascal scholars did think that Pascal thought reason could decide a lot of things. Yeah. And he actually thought reason could get us to the point where basically when it comes to religion, there's two live options. And those options are Christianity and atheism. I think that's interesting because, first of all, yeah, that's like a big step. Like, that's a lot for reason to decide. I think Pascal did think reason could do quite a bit of work. But so in the passage where Pascal talks about the famous wager, however, what, what Pascal is getting at is that when we're making a decision about what we want to kind of commit our lives to and what we want to live for, that decision does importantly involve questions about truth. But it also involves questions about, like, goodness and desire. So questions about God's goodness, questions about what kind of life would lead to the most happiness and the most flourishing for you, like, that kind of thing. And this is where the kind of famous major comes in. It's like, look, if Christianity is true and you follow Christianity, you have everything to gain. And if it's true and you don't, you have everything to lose. But if atheism true, and it's like, kind of doesn't matter that much either way. Like, either way, it's finite. You know what I mean? Right, exactly. Um, and so... Yeah, to me, Pascal's so, wager is extremely reasonable. <laughs> it's like the most reasonable right. approach one could take. It's not really based off of anything besides, like, well, I mean, like you said, it's based off of numerous things, but on its face, it just seems like it's based off of the most obvious logical following the implications of your decision, you know, and then deciding which one has more risk or more reward. It seems very reasonable. Yep. And Pascal was, uh, a lot of people consider Pascal to be kind of the founder of modern decision theory, which is, you know, a very like rigorous and respected academic discipline. And uh, I think too, like when it comes to the question of reason, I I think it's misguided to say that Pascal doesn't think reason doesn't matter at all, or those falling past those which are just, like, ignoring the truth. The point is just that, look, if certain people or certain religions are making claims about potential infinite gains and losses, like, you should take that seriously and you should pay attention to it. Yeah. Especially when you think their claims are kind of independently likely to be true. Yeah. So, it's just kind of saying, like, look, what is, like, what's, like, practically rational in this situation? And yeah. then Pascal, like, famously pointed out, like, look, we should be paying attention to these, like, the possibility that there's an there's infinite value, um, you know, in the afterlife. So, yeah. so, yeah, I mean, there is a sense in which the wager is different than a lot of the traditional arguments about existence, because it's about whether you should believe in God, not about whether, you know, God exists. Yeah. But I think that also shouldn't take away from the important role that reason is playing. Or, it's, and it's also not to say that Pascal just, like, is abandoning, like, philosophy or, like, <laughs> academic methods when making it. You know what I mean? Right. So. Totally. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's very, yeah. yeah, even, I mean, I, you know, I am familiar with Pascal's wager, but I'm not, I haven't read super widely, but I was like, what do you mean, man? Pascal 
put forth a very reasonable idea. So the idea that yeah. he's just tossing reason aside. Yeah. Influential philosopher. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, awesome. We pretty much dissected this article. Like I said, it's not super long. So if you want to go read it, you definitely should. And then, you know, you can kind of think a little more deeply about some of the things that Liz has offered here today. But this was super fun, Liz. Thanks for sharing your your philosophical expertise on this. And I hope we can do it again sometime. Me too. Yeah, I had a great time. I am a nerd and I always love talking about philosophy. So I would love to to talk about this more or talk about something else um, philosophy related sometime as well. Awesome. (laughs) Fantastic. Well, we will wrap up there. I hope you all enjoyed this as much as I did. And I will see you next time. Bye. He spoke to me with a voice so sweet. I thought I heard the shuffle of angels. He called my name and my heart stood still. When he said, John, go do my will. 